I want to remind you all, I'm a clinical psychologist in California, and I and the guests I have on the program are your relationship mentors. Well, we don't provide therapy. We provide you with information that will help you to have insights into your challenges. I am so happy to have time with you every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time to investigate relationship issues. As I've said before, almost every emotional problem you have in your life started with a relationship issue. I hope this program will provide you information that will help you resolve what relationship challenges you've had in the past. And usually what happens is we bring our past unresolved issues regarding relationships into the present, and we try to work them out in our current relationships. And I have never, ever seen this work. I hope you get excited about our relationship program because it will provide you with new information that will help you create your world and your life the way you want it to be. You have an opportunity to learn about why you do the things you do and why you select the people you put into your life. Our guest today is Dr. John Arden, and I am so honored to have him as a guest. He's going to provide us all with information that will help us better understand our relationship puzzles. He is an award-winning author of 15 books, and I can personally attest to being a reader, and I can attest to his books being reader-friendly and profoundly interesting. He will help you rewire your brain, and that's the name of one of his first books that became sort of like my Bible. I have read that book more than three times, and it's helped me so much with my relationships and my patients. For 17 years, Dr. Arden served as Kaiser Permanente's Director of Training for the 22 Northern California Medical Centers, and that, by the way, listeners, is a huge job. In this capacity, he developed one of the largest mental health intern and residency training programs in the United States. It still goes on today. And he also served as chief psychologist at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Vallejo, California. In his books, Dr. Arden has integrated, and I know these might be complicated words coming up, but he's going to explain them all. He's integrated neuroscience and psychotherapy and has merged them into what he calls brain-based therapy. And today we are going to be talking to Dr. Arden about his latest book called Mind, Brain, Gene, colon, Toward Psychotherapy Integration. And I love the name of this book. And I was looking at this title, I was struck by the idea of integrating psychotherapy with the mind and the brain and genetics. What a unique idea. We are especially fortunate to have Dr. Arden here with us to discuss his new book because it won't be available on Amazon until January 15th, but a little bird told me that it can be pre-ordered. By having Dr. Arden live in person today, we will get an inside view of his latest insights, research, and unique ideas. Let me introduce Dr. John Arden, and we can all be mentored by the expert Dr. Arden, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio. 
Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Anne, and I, I very much appreciate what you're doing on the show. Well, thank you, and I want to discuss your new book. I feel so fortunate that I and my listeners can have a peek into it before it's even on sale, and I understand that your new book has produced a tidal wave of change in the field of mental health and physical health, and I'd like to approach our interview by taking one step at a time as you walk us through your new insights. So first, over and above my introduction, is there anything else about yourself that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I, like many psychologists, uh, including you, uh, have been really concerned about the fragmentation and the inadequacy of our healthcare system. We're not only facing a major crisis, but also an amazing opportunity to transform health care. This involves the collaboration between integrated psychology and functional medicine. So the future can be quite bright. Well, I think that's a really important insight, and I'm fortunate enough to work in a place where we work with physicians and we work with people who think a little outside the box. So I'm curious about what prompted you to choose to become a psychologist. Well, that was an interesting road, and I'm sure everybody's is. Uh, Initially, I uh, had a a strong interest in becoming a a civil rights attorney, interested in poverty law and helping people in in dire situations. Then then I discovered psychology offered a much more comprehensive and, and fascinating way to help people. And as I evolved as a psychologist, uh, I became a little concerned about how we were so mired in all these theoretical clubs and Mm -hmm. cul-de-sacs. So Mm -hmm. my efforts over the last several years really have have been to uh, bring together areas of science that were once thought to be separate disciplines or uh, uh, kind of compartmentalized areas of research. So psychology for me has become incredibly exciting. So after 40 years of the, in the field, I don't want to leave. It's just too amazing. <laughs> well, I think that the integration is a wonderful and unique idea. I see it happening in uh, where I work, but not to the degree I think that it could be even more exciting and helpful to our patients. So we know now how you decided to become a psychologist, but how did you decide you wanted to also be an author on top of that? Well, you know, if you, if you consider what uh, a teacher uh, goes through, teaching is essentially a learning experience. So writing is a wonderful way to learn. Uh, what I mean by that is that you must develop a discipline uh, for focused learning. So when you write and edit maybe 50 to 100 times, a book evolves into a coherent body of knowledge. So as an advocate of change, my books attempt to bring together what was once assumed to be separate bodies of knowledge into some sense of an integrated model of what it means to be a human being. Well, as a reader of your books, I can attest to the fact that you honestly do that, and you do it, as I said, in a reader-friendly way that as a student before I became a psychologist, I could understand. So for the listeners, um, don't let the words we're going to use, if I can pronounce them, um, put you off from thinking about what Dr. Arden has put in his book. So you're the author of 15 books, 
And your latest one is called Mind Brain Gene Towards Psychotherapy Integration, which you kind of mentioned to us. And in layman's terms, would you explain to our listeners the idea you want your title to convey? So the title, Mind Brain Gene, conveys the necessity for understanding human beings as the synthesis of many dimensions uh, rather than just one thing, you know, one mind over here or a body over there or whatever, as if they're disconnected. If uh, you help people in, let's say, a psychotherapeutic uh, format, you must understand these dimensions generate all these feedback loops that collectively result in cognition, emotion, uh, various uh, reaction patterns, you know, when we're with other people, as you know more than most people, you know, relationships have a lot to do with how we've developed as human beings and how we develop as human beings results in uh, various ways of uh, managing our emotions and our relationships. So mind-brain-gene uh, is an attempt to bring together the fields of epigenetics, psychoneuromanology, neuroscience, and psychology, which we'll soon talk about. Yes, we will. And I find that we, we never can take our patients or the people that come to us for facilitating their own uh, mental health well-being uh, out of their context. We have to know what context, what their their history is, what their family relationships were, I think, before we can really interact with them in a, a profound, a more profound way. So um, I want to move on, though, and say that I've read reviews about your new book, and they are rave reviews, and I want to quote one, and I am quoting this. Dr. Arden has synthesized research and psychoneuroimmunology and epigenetics, boy, are those big words, with interpersonal neurobiology and research on integrated psychotherapeutic approaches as he explores how insecure attachment, deprivation, and child abuse and trauma contribute to anxiety disorders and depression to produce epigenetic effects. I had to read the reviewer's sentence about three times before my brain could assimilate what I just read so for those of us who are new to these terms, and I'm not new to them, but I could stand at a refresher course, would you take us through them step by step? Talk to us about um, psychoneuroimmunology. What does that mean? Boy, that is a, a fancy long term, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes, so, it is. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculously complicated, but it isn't really, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the actual meaning of it. Uh, so to begin with, the, that term, psychoneuroimmunology, involves the interactions between the mind, the brain, and the immune system. So more than ever, we can uh, understand how the immune system affects mental health. For example, one of the areas that I discuss in the book is uh, uh, how the immune system uh, causes mental health uh, problems. Let's take, for example, chronic inflammation. Millions. Mm. I'm, I'm really talking millions of people, maybe, oh, 40 to 50 million people in the United States are suffering from chronic inflammation, and they don't even know that they are. Uh, and we can get more into that a little later, but with regard to epigenetics, we can now appreciate that DNA is really not destiny. So genes can be expressed, or they may not be expressed, and it has a lot to do with your lifestyle. 
Though this means we have to understand how lifestyle affects gene expression. So our role, really, as uh, psychologists, as therapists, is to help people change their lifestyle behaviors so that they can get the most out of their DNA. Now, with regards to attachment problems, uh, deprivation, abuse, trauma, we know that the immune system dysregulations are more common than not. Uh, and, in fact, uh, if you have difficulties early in life, let's say, for example, deprivation, child abuse, or whatever, we know now that the levels of, of inflammation can last a lifetime. So what we have to do, really, is uh, help people uh, get uh, re-regulated. You could say maybe the term re-regulated is a little uh, bit of a mouthful, too, but help them develop a better um, uh, more harmonious uh, interaction between all these feedback loops. And uh, as a result of doing that, they're going to suffer from far less uh, risk of depression, anxiety, relationship problems. And uh, health is really mental health and vice versa. Wow. Well, you said so much, and I want to dissect that a little bit. We are coming up on a break, Dr. Arden. But um, the idea of inflammation is a new one to me, and when we come back, I hope that you will expound a little bit more on that. So, listeners, we are going to take a break, and we will be right back with my esteemed guest, Dr. John Arden. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. Happy Oregon homeownership is the result of a good working relationship between the home buyer and their realtor. Make buying your Oregon home a fun and rewarding experience. Get our free guide to happy Oregon homeownership. Act now. Limited availability. Free at realoregonhomes.com. That's realoregonhomes.com. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs.com 
fourpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. And make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Done these interactions. So if Happy Oregon homeownership is the result of a good working relationship between the home buyer and their realtor. Make buying your Oregon home a fun and rewarding experience. Get our free guide to Happy Oregon Homeownership. Act now. Limited availability. Free at realoregonhomes.com. That's realoregonhomes.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Oh, this is new. Yeah. So I don't know if we're on the air. So Yeah, I think so. Okay. So um, welcome back, listeners. We are with Dr. John Arden. We were just having an off-mic conversation, but now we're back with you. And um, Dr. Arden, I'm so curious about this inflammation idea and, you know, how do we ever know if we have that going on in our bodies and what can we do about it? Well, you know, inflammation is, is uh, uh, a process that your immune system, our immune system, um, uh, kicks into gear. And inflammation is really important, you know, if you have a cut, a bruise, or, or whatever, uh, because it, it involves a healing process. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you're uh, not in good health, then the immune system kicks into gear when you do not need it. And we know that in general from the whole spectrum of disorders that we call autoimmune disorders. You know, let's take arthritis or, or one of those uh, autoimmune disorders. And um, it unfortunately is the case that uh, maybe half the population of the United States is experiencing various degrees of chronic inflammation. Well, how can I say that? Well, if you have extra fat cells, those fat cells are leaching out. What, uh, t- there's a technical term here. These, these uh, protein substances called pro- uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these are these information uh, um, molecules. And uh, what is happening here is that your fat cells uh, then um, are generating an inflammatory response. So maybe about three-quarters of the population in the United States are overweight up to about a third or obese. We're talking about a crisis in healthcare. Now, having extra fat cells, I don't mean to just uh, focus all my attention on, on fat cells. but That's okay. I think pre- many of us can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> we all can. We all can. And, and we lead the world in it, by the way. Yes. Uh, have extra, having extra fat cells then results in this chronic state of inflammation. Now, let's throw in another problem, the Western diet. And the Western diet is replete in 
um, all sorts of already digested foods. And what I'm talking about is simple carbohydrates, white flour, not just sugar, white rice, and, and all these uh, food substances that are really processed. In other words, they're digested for you, so they turn into glucose immediately. And as a result, they create all sorts of inflammatory uh, responses and then um, cause uh, dysbiosis in your gut. And so there's a lot of research, interestingly, uh, on gut bacteria, for example. And mm. it turns out that um, uh, there are uh, many, many thousands of different types of uh, gut bacteria. But in general, there are two general categories, the Firmicutes and the Bacteriates. And if you're up on the Firmicutes, they love simple carbohydrates. And as a result, you store extra fat cells. And you could run the risk of leaky gut syndrome, and millions of people are experiencing leaky gut syndrome and don't even know it. What does that result in? More chronic inflammation. And now, one last thing about the chronic inflammation paradigm here is that you have an immune system in your brain. So we have white, uh, white uh, matter and uh, gray matter, for example. You know, gray matter is the neurons, and the white matter are these glial cells. And these glial cells... Uh, there are a whole bunch of different types, but the microglial actually respond to inflammatory uh, activity and secrete themselves, these pro-inflammatory cytokines, and now you've got the inflammation in the brain. And what happens if you do? Dementia results from it. And before you get to dementia, you get cloudy thinking, you get dysphoric moods, you're sitting there with another person uh, and you can't respond to them because of all the wonderful subtleties of human relationships, as you know better than most, being a relationship specialist. So here you are, a sick person, and the other person doesn't know why they're, you're not there with them, because you're just fogged out. You've got dysphoric moods, and it's all about chronic inflammation. I shouldn't say all about it. <laughs> um, what I mean is it's a major contributor to these dysfunctions. Well, I want to say I'm going to walk around all day worried about if I'm inflamed or not. <laughs> I think I'm going to throw away the white bread and all the uh, white potatoes in my refrigerator. That's, that is so concerning. And on top of that, I, I don't know as much about epigenetics as you do, and I want us, our listeners and myself to better understand it. I understand the term to describe how genetics can be switched on and off. Would you please enlighten us more about epigenetics, epigenetics, sure. and explain to us what an epigenetic effect is? So let's let's take the term epigenetics. It, it's I know again another one of these technical terms, and, and epigenetics means above the genome. And you know we we once thought we had um, uh, maybe a hundred thousand genes, and, and thanks to the um, Human Genome Project, uh, we discovered that we uh, actually have uh, roughly about 24,000 uh, genes. And what's a gene? Well, a gene is essentially a section of your DNA that codes for protein. Um, that means that there's a lot of your DNA that isn't directly associated with uh, coding for specific proteins. And that means we have a whole range of possibilities for turning on those um, genes are turning off. So one of the um, really um, exciting and illuminating um, areas of research began in the late, teen, the late 1990s 
uh, up at McGill University, kind of like their Harvard of Canada. And uh, researchers um, like Michael Meany and others were looking at uh, what good mothering resulted in. He was initially working with rats and uh, then extrapolated from that to, to humans and found that good mothering resulted in a better thermostat for stress. So technically, these researchers found that the expression of the cortisol receptor in an area of the brain called the hippocampus uh, seemed to develop. So these cortisol receptors acted like a thermostat for stress. And what I mean by that is that this thermostat, like a thermostat in your house, as the heat goes up, you know, the thermostat uh, uh, picks it up and turns off the heat. Well, in the case of these cortisol receptors on your hippocampus, as the cortisol, uh, cortisol level rises, and again, cortisol is just one of the many stress hormones, as the cortisol level rises, this thermostat function turns off the HPA axis. This is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is kind of like one of your, your stress systems. In other words, if you have more cortisol receptors through these epigenetic pathways because of good nurturing early in life, you've got a better thermostat for stress. You're a more resilient person. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that my patients who have not had good mothering or parenting really have a very difficult time handling stress. And um, on top of that, I want you to explain stress and how it relates to interpersonal neurobiology. And we're coming up on a break in a couple minutes, so um, I just want to make you mindful of that. How does, how does that interweave, interpersonal bi- neurobiology and epigenetics? Well, you know, the, the um, uh, term uh, interpersonal neurobiology, again, it's another one of these big mouthful uh, terms, but it, it describes uh, a, a kind of a concept, and that is a nurtured nature. So it's not like we have a blank mind, a tabula rasa like John Locke thought, you know, we're all, or the behaviorist thought, we're all the same early in life, and then it's all the in, encountering all these uh, experiences that shape us. Well, we come into the world with a different uh, genome and, and different temperament and so on, and it uh, uh, has a lot to do with how we adapt to this early environment, so we can call this interpersonal neurobiology, um, and let me say that uh, uh, the Norton series in interpersonal neurobiology is a really an amazing library of resources. I, I've read many of their books in this series and, and been enriched by them. And I'm, I'm really honored that my book, Mind, Brain, Gene, is published in this series. So it, it is really a synthesis, uh, you know, of many different dynamics. So um, some of the uh, other books, um, including... Uh, uh, some written by a good friend of mine, Lou Cozzolino and Dan Siegel and Alan Shore and other people, uh, have discussed how this early experience that we all go through shapes our brains, shapes our bodies, shapes our adaptive patterns. And that has a lot to do with how we're going to react and how we're going to interact with uh, other people, especially those of, of our intimate partners. Okay, so listeners, we will be back. We have to take a break, and we are talking to Dr. John Arden. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Listeners, we are lucky to be back with Dr. John Arden. We are discussing so many new ideas, I can't believe it, but I'm going to go back to an old idea. So, you know that expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? I think it's amazing that scientific research shows us just this is not true anymore. And let us wrap our minds around the idea that with every new idea, attitude, behavior, or piece of knowledge... You're listening to America's Web Radio on the American... ...changing and influencing the construct of our brains. And we can teach an old dog new tricks. I teach myself new tricks all the time. So... Um, Dr. Arden, would you go on and describe to us how interpersonal um, neurobiology affects our social relationships and how can we teach ourselves new tricks? Well, this is all uh, really exciting stuff and and uh, certainly inspiring uh, uh, for those of us, uh, you know, going through aging. Um, uh, so though it is true that old dogs can learn new tricks, they don't learn them as quickly as young dogs uh, consider uh, <laughs> consider how learning a second language at age nine is quite different from learning a uh, second language at 29. If Boy, how about older than that? I've been trying to learn Spanish forever. <laughs> oh, yeah, at 31 now. <laughs> yeah, forget it. So, so as you learn uh, Spanish at age 31, you're going to be learning Spanish with a little bit of an accent, right, compared to had you learned Spanish at age, uh, let's say, 9. If you learn Spanish at age 9, uh, you're most probably not going to have the accent that you're going to have at age 31 or uh, or 32, and <laughs> but let me, yeah, let me just say that both dogs can learn all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of new tricks. And you know, I'm inspired by my grandfather, who who not only spoke uh, five languages, but uh, he made a point to learn four new words a day up to about a month before he died. And my father. Uh, uh, 
he kept going to college after he lear- earned his law degree uh, every semester for the next 55 years. He took mm. geology, oceanography, computer science, so many other subjects. And right before he died, he was a graduate student in painting. So, yes, you can learn new tricks later on. In fact, you know, in the in the field of um, aging, we know that um, uh, there's a, a term, another one of these technical terms, uh, but it's called cognitive reserve. So the more connections in your brain between your brain cells later in life, the more you can lose without looking like you lost much. So that's called cognitive reserve. So oh. the more you have on the bench, so to speak. Um, so, so I guess we're saying keep learning. Oh, absolutely. Uh, learning is, is brain protective. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of the fundamental healthy behaviors uh, that we must engage in on a regular basis. Okay, so I think that's a, a really a cardinal point. And I'd like you to describe to us, because this is a relationship radio program, how interpersonal neurobiology affects our social relationships. Well, you know, as we were uh, noting a little bit, uh, bit before, and, and uh, certainly you as a relationship uh, specialist know that uh, attachment style uh, has a lot to do with uh, how you interact with um, um, especially those people that you're in interpersonal or intimate relationship with. So let's take, for example, some of the recent research in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area by Mary Maine and her colleagues who have taken a look at uh, adult attachment patterns. And in fact, Mary Maine was working with Mary Ainsworth uh, uh, some years before, and they found that these adult attachment styles had a very strong correlation with the child attachment style. So if we take the uh, adult attachment style uh, referred to as the dismissing style, uh, there's a strong relationship between the dismissing style and the avoidant style. That's the avoidant mm. style is for children. Uh, and here what you find is um, uh, children and adults who have either an avoidant or a dismissing style are just kind of like uh, tone deaf. You know, they just can't hear the emotion in somebody's um, uh, words and, and their expression and, and so on. And uh, uh, you and I know from having done couples uh, counseling that uh, if you have a couple uh, and one of the uh, uh, members of the, the uh, couple is a dismissing person, another, uh, they're really not going to get a lot of the nuances of uh uh, that relationship on an emotional level, they're they're just not there. In fact, their partner might say, "But he's just not here for me." And the, certainly, the the dismissing person say, "What do you mean I'm not here? I'm here every night." No, 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 no. You're not here, here. What do you mean here, here? Uh, and he just doesn't get it. If if you follow what I mean. So, how does this relate to? Uh, interpersonal neurobiology and, and neuroscience and, and all that. It turns out that people that have a tendency to be avoidant in general tend to be more right hemisphere dominant. And it also turns out that people that are overactive in the right hemisphere tend to be more anxious people because if you withdraw or you avoid what makes you anxious, now you're going to kick your right hemisphere into overactivity with not as much left hemisphere um, 
activation, and as a result, you're going to be more anxious and depressed. So you throw that in the relationship. Now you've got a person that avoids, and now they're going to be more anxious and more depressed. It's really hard to have an intimate relationship with somebody that's both avoidant and anxious and depressed at the same time because there's so many opportunities for misunderstandings. I mean, let's face it, most of human communication is misunderstanding anyway. We can't really read in a purely direct way what the other person is feeling or thinking or whatever. If you throw these factors into the hopper, now you've got a really dysfunctional relationship. Anne? John, and? I, I, uh, my uh, connection dropped, so I very much apologize for that. It just dropped out. Oh, I thought it was at my end, and, and I, mm-hmm. I, I was about ready to call back because I've had some problems. I'm out here on a mountain ridge in northern New Mexico, and our connection is really uh, bad. Uh, no, it was me. I don't know how that happened, but listeners, I apologize out of my control. So we're going to go back and um, pick up on how interpersonal neurobiology affects our inner experiences. And you were talking about avoidance and dismissiveness and having a spouse say or a partner say, you know, you're not there for me. And that's where I dropped out. So I'm wondering if you could pick that up. Sure. So let's say that you are avoidant or dismissive, um, you know, as an adult. And now you're in this intimate relationship, and your partner is wanting more emotional intimacy, more, uh, uh, let's say, uh, nuanced um, uh, sensitivity to uh, how he or she um, might be experiencing life. Um, And uh, these kinds of experiences are anxiety-provoking, and then you avoid on top of that. If you avoid on top of that, you get more anxious, you get more anxious, it's a more difficult uh, project ahead of you to try to develop an intimate relationship. So what we find is people that are more avoidant, more uh, withdrawing, have a tendency to not connect with their partners in a, uh, a more uh, rich, multidimensional uh, sort of way, and they tend to be more anxious and depressed. And mm. that's into this whole process, and by the way, now we have the immune system being kicked into gear, so you're having a tendency to kick on the immune system in, in inappropriate ways. So now you get more what we call sickness behavior, which is really the result of chronic inflammation, uh, as we were talking about before. So all these factors are interrelated. And, uh, and can we so change that? Oh, of course, of course. So um, uh, we... Um, uh, Not only, let's say you're doing couples therapy or you're just, uh, you know, a partner in a relationship, uh, it it really is our challenge to step out of our comfort zone. And you can't change the brain without stepping out of your comfort zone in general anyway. Uh, So you can't be too comfortable and expect your brain to be changing. So our job uh, as therapists or let's say you're just... uh, 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 wanting to change your relationship without a therapist, you're just kind of reading self-help books or, or maybe challenging um, the relationship by having these difficult conversations. Um, and your job is to bring up things in tactful ways that are really anxiety-provoking. 
Uh, and that eventually results in increasing your comfort zone. So the problem with most relationships is people stay in their comfort zone, and that makes them terribly uncomfortable. <laughs> in other words, they paint themselves into a corner. Yes, and I see this in so many couples and in so many patients who come to me without their significant other, and they're trying to change that person, and the other person doesn't respond to the, what their needs are, and they never have that discussion. Is that your experience, too? Oh, yeah, and in fact, uh, uh, I was always uh, amazed that um, when I would be doing, you could say, um, a focused attention on relationships and you only have one of the partners there in, in the session with you, you invite the other you know, the partner in. You don't, but the, the, uh, your client does. And, boy, the whole situation changes in your mind as the therapist because all you've been hearing is one side of the story. Well, everybody thinks they're right, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we and have to so get now, out of the right zone. <laughs> yeah, and so what you see is, my God, the whole situation is incredibly uh, different. Mm-hmm. And so now your your job is to change the dynamic by actually – uh, uh, creating what uh, an old therapist named Fritz Perls used to, to say, you have to create a safe emergency. In other mm-hmm. words, you have the safety of the, the relationship, meaning uh, you know, you, you're the therapist and you're there to help them and, and you have the, kind of the alliance and all that. But the emergency part of it is you're there to make changes and you can't make changes without being a little uncomfortable. And in fact, you've got to be uncomfortable to change the brain. Uh, so uh, the whole process of changing a couple's kind of relationship is to change the comfort zone, to expand yes. it. And this is very scary for folks and, and challenging, and it takes a lot of courage to do it. So those of us, our listeners who are thinking about, well, I need to make some changes in myself and, and maybe in the relationship, I hope you honor your courage because it's easier to sit there and do nothing and just worry about it and be stressed about it. And I want to know, Dr. Arden, how does interpersonal neurobiology influence our inner experiences? You've talked a little bit about that, but could you give us sort of a a little snippet of how that might, what we might do about learning about that? Sure. Yeah, let, let's uh, talk uh, first uh, about um, what it is um, uh, uh, that we're talking about when we say inner experiences. So uh, mm-hmm. to, to do so, um, let's make note of these, uh, uh, let's say, three um, mental operating networks that we're constantly uh, shifting uh, to and from all the time. So there's... Uh, a network called the executive network, and the executive network has a lot to do with our ability to stay present uh, and be in the same place that you are without going off somewhere and fantasizing and all that. And when you do, you're in what is called the default mode network. And the default mode network uh, is uh, the, uh, the 
the so-called inner experience that you have when you're reflecting on what happened in the interaction. Oh, he said this. She. Uh, oh, maybe I should have said that. You know, we we rehearse uh, and maybe even mull over uh, conversations. Uh, we sort of have a conversation in our mind, so to speak, and that's in the default mode network. And then there's this salience network, and the salience network, in part, is kind of like your material me, your sense of self. And uh, there's a lot of incredible research in neuroscience around these uh, uh, reactive patterns that generate emotion. So, Dr. Arden, we're coming up on a hard break. And so, listeners, we will be right back with Dr. John Arden talking about interpersonal experiences. We'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Happy Oregon homeownership is the result of a good working relationship between the home buyer and their realtor. Make buying your Oregon home a fun and rewarding experience. Get our free guide to happy Oregon homeownership. Act now. Limited availability. Free at realoregonhomes.com. That's realoregonhomes.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, listeners, we are back with Dr. John Arden, our esteemed guest, talking about a bunch of long words that I hope you remember the concept of. Now, Dr. Arden, I want to ask you about something I that's near and dear to my heart. How would you think about interpersonal neurobiology in relationship to addiction? Well, you know, um, again, the, the neuroscience... Um, uh, in the last 20 years has uh, illuminated our understanding of uh, these uh, pleasure pathways uh, in the brain and really helped in, in many ways uh, redirect our efforts to help people with various addictions and help them through recovery and all that. So let me just take a few of these uh, areas, and I know that some of the terms might be kind of complicated, but there is, there's this whole pleasure circuit in the brain that we've identified, oh, maybe 30 years ago, but now we understand it in in much deeper um, way than ever before. So there's these areas, uh, you know, I'll just rattle off a few terms real quick, but, you know, there's 
areas that release uh, a uh, neurotransmitter called dopamine that hits the pleasure center of the brain, which is kind of, kind of like a grand central station called the nucleus incumbens. And then whenever that happens, your prefrontal cortex, which is really kind of like your brain's brain, is going to come up with all sorts of reasons as to why that was a good thing that you just did, whether it mm-hmm. might have been you know, gambling or alcohol or, or whatever. Oh, you know, I, I, I'm a winner at uh, gambling, or I'm, I'm really not an alcoholic or whatever. However, let's say you get involved in this uh, pattern that creates uh, uh, problems in your life that we call addiction, and now you're wanting to have a sense of recovery. You go through a recovery program, or maybe you're just doing it by yourself. Uh, it turns out that uh, what I was describing earlier, this, this neurotransmitter system called dopamine, it's not just one uh, system. There are different types of receptors in your brain. There are the direct and indirect. Um, and it, it turns out that if you have mildly pleasurable experiences, a grander repertoire of different types of pleasurable experiences, you can grow these new and they're called D2 receptors in the nucleus incumbents that help you have a, a much more, let's say, wide spectrum, a rainbow of different types of pleasurable experiences. What you had done in the past was have the direct route go, oh, all I do for pleasure is gamble, or all I do for pleasure is after 5 o'clock I just drink, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, get the direct route going. And so our job now is to expand the brain's capacity for a variety of different types of pleasurable experiences. And neuroscience is now illuminating why this is so important. So in NAAA, all those self-help organizations that have saved millions of people's lives, what they do, not knowing about the brain networks, is help people expand their range of pleasurable experiences in a much more comprehensive way, and that's recovery. So just saying no just doesn't seem to work. (laughs) What you've got to do is expand your capacity to have mildly pleasurable experiences in a whole range of different types of formats. Yes, and you know, it takes um, some thought and it takes willingness to be able to explore things that might give us pleasure uh, besides our addiction. And, uh, I, of course, you know, I'm really interested in this, the topic of addiction and the nucleus accumbens, and we can't really have our pleasure center drive our bus. We can have it be part of the bus. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. You need it. You need it. And that pleasure center, so to speak, uh, can respond to a variety, and I keep underlining the the phrase, you know, mildly positive uh, experiences, because it's these extreme experiences that a person can be addicted to, for example. Let me take, for example, if you don't mind, uh, take uh, skiing. So I'm looking from where I'm sitting right now up to our ski resort. So I'm looking, I'm sitting at uh, my ridge, uh, you know, 7,300 feet, and I'm looking up to about, oh, 12,500, and, you know, I've skied a lot in my life and everything. I, I used to ski with more sort of uh, adolescence, <laughs> so 
so to speak, you know, like, oh, i got to go down this heavy, you know, double black diamond and all that. And, you know, well, wait a minute, what about all those other pleasurable uh, runs that you could be taking and, and uh, nice, graceful skiing and all that? Well, now that I'm, I'm a little older, I'm a little bit more, but you could say, more mature in my capacity to experience a whole range of different types of slopes. We can call those slopes uh, uh, you know, different types of people, different you know, relationships. and So you don't have to have one type of relationship to have pleasure. You can have a whole range because every person is a, is a whole world in themselves. And everybody has something to say, and our job is to see the goodness in, in each person. We can spend a lot of time thinking about their not-so-positive uh, aspects, but you know, let's face it, we all have flaws, and you know, all we focus on is those flaws, and we're looking for the pleasure, uh, then all of our relationships are going to be really screwed up, so to speak. And many of us have that. So um, I want to ask you also about how insecure attachment and deprivation and child abuse and trauma contribute to anxiety disorders and depression. You've touched on this a little bit and how they contribute to produce those epigenetic effects that we've been talking about. And before you answer all that big, long question, could you tell us about what insecure attachment is? Because it affects so many adults. Sure. You know, it's a, um, it's a term that we've used in, in psychology uh, really for roughly uh, 50, 60 years. And the, the concept is that... Um, if we have a, a flexible and nurturing relationship early in life, uh, then we're going to be far more responsive to all the variabilities that we experience later in life. And I like to use, uh, uh, to describe this, a, a wonderful pediatrician uh, named Donald Winnicott, really great guy, uh, who uh, said that good enough parenting is so much better than perfect parenting. And what he was meaning by that is that uh, the uh, parents who provide consistent, loving, um, and nurturing uh, environments that are not perfect, uh, in other words, uh, that are responsive but not always in the same particular way, provide a better opportunity to develop uh, stress tolerance. Um, mm. So uh, let's say, uh, Anne, you're my baby and you're crying, and if I'm immediately over there, drop everything, and I'm, I'm helping calm you down. There's like immediate gratification, no opportunity for you to, to notice that, um, uh, you know, I'm always there, but I'm not always there in the same way each time. Uh, and I'm not immediately there. So you develop this infrastructure of stress tolerance. Because I might say, Ann, I'll be right over there. Wait, let me turn off the water and, and mm. finish my sentence with my, uh, you know, my wife or who, wh- whoever I'm talking to, and I'm going to be over there. So let's now move to later relationships. If I had that good enough parenting that helped me develop this range of uh, stress tolerance uh, and uh, an infrastructure of um, uh, let's say, durability, now whatever you might say that might potentially upset me, I, can, I have these internal shock absorbers. So I might not overreact to you. I might not immediately get um, upset that you're insulting me or, or whatever. I'm more able to take a little bit of criticism 
uh, instead of be you know, have no uh, skin at all. I, uh, I, I would have more thick skin, so to speak. Uh, so these early experiences have a lot to do with later interpersonal experiences. But what if you didn't have very good early environment? That doesn't mean you're done. You know, oh, forget it for relationships. No, it's a learning experience. You you talked earlier about or asked about old dogs learning new tricks. Well, that's mm-hmm. what we do. <laughs> we learn how to have more durable, uh, more flexible uh, types of relationships as we live. Uh, and we learn a lot in our early adulthood, uh, especially in interpersonal uh, intimate relationships, because uh, breakups are actually great learning experiences. Well, um, we have been talking with Dr. John Arden, and we've been talking about his latest book, his latest book, Mind, Brain, and Gene Towards Psychotherapy Integration, which is available January 15th, 2019, this year, and it can be pre-ordered online right now. And Dr. Arden, um, we have just a couple minutes left, but in closing, could you share with us the top three points from your new book that you would want our listeners to walk away with? Well, that uh, we, as human beings, aren't the result of uh, just uh, those early environment kinds of experiences, uh, nor are we uh, the result of our genes, uh, that there's incredible malleability, uh, malleable ability, that's a mouthful, <laughs> incredible flexibility. I mean, t- take a look at um, uh, human beings on the planet. We've adjusted to all kinds of environments. We've uh, made all sorts of adjustments interpersonally and in different cultures and so on. We're incredibly adaptive creatures. And being adaptive, uh, uh, marshals together many of the resources that we have, which include how hungry our brain is for a new experience uh, mm-hmm. and our body in adaptation. Uh, however, if we begin to develop some unhealthy lifestyles, like, uh, for example, we don't move much, uh, we don't exercise much, and exercise is the most um, uh, powerful antidepressant and good brain uh, 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 instilling uh, activity. If we don't do these healthy behaviors, we run the risk of dysregulating all these feedback loops. Well, those are really important, Dr. Arden. And I want to thank you so very much for being such an informative guest. I hope we can have you back because there's so many more questions I think we all have. This is Dr. Ann Schiebert, your relationship mentor, reminding you that only you have the power to create your world the way you want it to be, and you can send me questions at ann.schiebert at gmail.com. Until next week, don't say, don't stay the same. Rewire your brain.
Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio listeners. We are to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio listeners. We are your relationship mentor. It's five days until Christmas Eve, if you can believe that. 